Hey, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you don't have one, there's one in the pew rack in front of you. And if you um, need aid in finding it, it's page 17, I think 82, 1782, or something like that. Um, if you're new to High Point, um, what I practice is what's called expositional preaching, which means I kind of preach through books of the Bible. So if we read this and you're wondering why um, we picked this passage for today, the answer is it's next. That's all. So, uh, 1783, and um, if you're also new to the Bible, um, 1 Corinthians is a letter written to a church in the Greek city of Corinth by the Apostle Paul to help explain to them what the gospel is all about and clear up some of their relatively grave misunderstandings about it. And so it's really helpful for us, too. So, here we go. Starting on the little 23 on the left-hand side of page 1783, if you're looking at a pew Bible. Verse 23. Everything is permissible— but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If some unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if anyone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the man who told you and for conscience' sake. The other man's conscience, I mean, not yours. For why should my freedom be judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So whatever you do, whatever you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the Church of God, even as I try to please everybody in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Um, one of the phrases that, um, that commentators and sometimes pastors like to use when they're trying to sound smart is the phrase, a Pyrrhic victory. I don't know if you're familiar with that or not, but um, a Pyrrhic victory is when you win a victory, but you really lose the war. Uh, and it comes from one of the ancient battles between early Rome and aging Greece when um, one of the Greek um, kings won two battles against the Romans, but he did so at such a loss to his own people and he did so in a way that aggravated the Romans so much so that they could recruit new soldiers much more easily that in winning, he really lost. And so a Pyrrhic victory is something that, it's, it's a win that's also a loss. And I cannot believe you did not find that picture funny because I laughed out loud in my office for like three full minutes, okay? Um, and one of the things, and so sometimes you think of that, for example, in parenting, a lot of— um, a lot of parents feel like, you know, if I discipline my kid too hard, they're going to go the other way. It'll be a Pyrrhic victory. Now, usually that's a cop-out. Um, it's, it's a way to get out of the hard work of parenting. But there are some of these in relationship to—in in, in context to relationships. For example, there's the temptation to, um, to comfort somebody sometimes by lying to them. Right? So here's the problem with that. Um, you win in the short term because they might feel better, but then you lose because now they can't trust you. And so every time you try to comfort them, even if you tell them the truth, you, you lose the ability to comfort them with lies or the truth in the future. It's a pyrrhic victory. You won, but you totally lost. Um, and as, as we look at 1 Corinthians, particularly this section, chapters 8 through till 10, um, the concept of the human conscience 
and how it relates to who we are in Jesus and what we are as people comes up more than anywhere else in the Bible. And it's at the center of what the Apostle Paul is talking about. And one of the, one of the things that essentially I think he's arguing is, is that the greatest Pyrrhic victory in terms of how we live with other people and act our lives out spiritually is that whenever we get to do something, get somebody to do something, even if it's for, the, if it's for their own good, but we violate their conscience or we get them to violate their conscience, um, we've ultimately, whatever good we think we've accomplished, we've created more damage than any good we think we've accomplished. And we've ultimately won a Pyrrhic victory because of the damage it, that's done to somebody whenever they go against their conscience. And so um, I think if we understand chapter 8 and chapter 10 where conscience gets mentioned a number of times, you could say this, and this is a little dramatic, but I think that it's pretty accurate, that doing any damage to the conscience of another is spiritual attempted murder. To do any damage to the conscience of another is spiritual attempted murder. Now, it's important on a certain— I didn't get to talk about this last service, but one of the things that's important to recognize is that you have to make a distinction between your spiritual conscience and your moral conscience. Because if you, you, what God says is true and therefore is universal for our, all people and that we must do and must not do, that is your moral conscience, and that is objective. It is not subjective, and you must obey it. That is different than having a dynamic relationship with the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit is leading you in one way, direction versus another— and you're trying to figure out subjectively what God is wanting you to do. If you mistake those two, you will have a neurosis that will eat you alive inside. Because one, you must obey. The other is essentially an experiment, experimental relationship. You're figuring it out. So they're very different. What I'm talking about is the moral conscience. That which we know is true, good, right, honorable, and noble, that is true about God, is revealed in the truth about Christ, and that our conscience must know and obey. Does that make sense? And so therefore, one of the things that I think is incredibly important for us to recognize as Christians, and something that's really slipping because it's not believed in our culture, is that the human conscience is inviolable. I had to try to pronounce that like eight times before the service started. Another word to try to sound smart. But I think it's exactly the right word. That the human conscience is inviolable. That is, you cannot violate it and be better or better off. To violate the human conscience is always a pyrrhic victory. Um, for those of you who are visual learners, I've put this together for you. Um, and so what I want to do this morning is um, a little different than normal. I want to go through a biblical theology of the conscience because a lot of people just do not have this clear. And I, be I actually believe it's incredibly important to have a biblical understanding of conscience clear um, for a number of reasons that I'll get into as I go along. Um, but I, I really— Normally, I would not do this. It would, it's, it'll feel a little more academic and it, than, than you might like. Um, but as best as I can, I think this is an act of love because if you get this straight, it will, it will fix the way and it will solidify and clarify a lot of things you, the way you see the world in such a way as it'll solidify your faith, it'll help you know what you're being called to do and all that. Um, that, that cannot happen if this isn't clear, okay? So one of the things I think we need to recognize is, is that, the, that our conscience is really where our experience of our thinking, our feeling, and our will kind of come together. It's, it's sort of, the, it's the nexus of our personhood. It's the seat of our humanity. And that's one of the reasons why it's incredibly important that it not be a thing that's violated. Because 
if it's, if it's where the seed of your humanity existence, where your, your mind, your heart, and your will is all coming together and swirling about, it's the center of who you really are as a psychological person. Therefore, it becomes the, the doorway to salvation, and it also becomes the gateway to damnation. And it is the place where salvation happens. It's, it's the seat of who we are. And so to violate conscience is, is, to, is to try to get somewhere through a lie. That's why you can't even ask somebody to believe in Jesus against their conscience. Because if they believe in Jesus in such a way as it is a fundamental, inauthentic lie within their conscience, you're asking them to come to the truth through a lie. That's why Christianity has always been rooted in persuasion rather than coercion. Christianity can never be truly a faith of coercion because in order to bring somebody Christianly from one place to another, they have to come willingly. It ha- and it has to be an act not just of a, a pragmatically saying, okay, I'll do that if I get this. It has to be a sense of conviction. They have to believe it's true, it's right, it's a must, and therefore their conscience has to be persuaded. So let's follow three—I want to follow three lines of thought with this, okay? The first is that when we look at the biblical doctrine of conscience, the the human conscience can never be violated, meaning it should never be violated. You cannot allow your conscience or the conscience of another person to be violated. Now let me try to argue this biblically, because you might think that this is a little bit raising conscience a little bit too high. But as you go through the Bible, there's a number of things you see. The first is that God is not chosen for people to believe in him against their conscience— God has not chosen, even when he saves and he draws people to his, himself and to his truth, he doesn't do it against people's consciences. For example, look at John 16, 8. Jesus is saying, when he ascends into heaven and the Holy Spirit comes, he says, when he, meaning the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, think about that. What, what does convict mean? I mean, to be convicted of something in the psychological sense rather than the legal sense means to be stricken of conscience. It means that, that you realize the truth of a moral prophecy. That something is true and right and good, and therefore you're either going to live in relationship to that or against it. And therefore you realize that either you have, to, you have to abide by and obey the truth or you have to live a lie. And that is the choice you're making. And it's painful, right? That's what it means to be stricken of conscience. That's what it means to be convicted of something. And you see, that is exactly what the Holy Spirit does in salvation. And sanctification, not only bringing somebody to Jesus, but bringing them along in Jesus. What, what does the Holy Spirit do? Where does he enter? Where does he come in? What's the doorway to salvation? Right? It's right there. It's in the conscience. And so when God draws somebody to himself, he may do it irresistibly, meaning we're going to come in, but, he's, but it's going to be because he, we're willingly and irresistibly drawn, because he will persuade our conscience. The second, Romans 9, 1, Paul is speaking, and he's trying to convince people um, of the truth. He's speaking all through chapters 1 through, through 8 of Romans, and he gets to the end of that section, and he said some pretty bold things, and he says, listen, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it. In the Holy Spirit. Now, what does that mean, right? Prepositional phrases are important, right? My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? My conscience is in the Holy Spirit, right? What that means is they're in—they're working together. They're saying the same thing. What, what his 
human conscience in relationship to Jesus saying, and with the Holy Spirit in union with his conscience in terms of relationship, believing the truth, they, they're saying the same thing, that the drive to say what he's saying about salvation in Romans 1 through 8, and what the Holy Spirit is persuading his heart is true, and the union of his conscience with the Holy Spirit are saying the same thing. There's a union, and that is the nature of what it means to walk with God and know God and to be saved, is that when we're converted and the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us, that union happens at the nexus of our personhood, where our mind, our will, and our, our emotions come together. It, it exists in the conscience. And therefore, should we tear down the house or violate the place in which either salvation enters or damnation is confirmed? No, that place could not be more sacred. It is the most sacred thing about you and the thing that most dramatically has to be defended, even in the whole Christian tradition, and I'll get to this in a bit, at the cost of our own life. Secondly, one of the things that you see in Scripture in relationship to consciousness, one of the only places in the Bible where God's right anger against sin is lessened or he responds differently in relationship to how people sins, is in w only one situation. And that is when the person is wrong out of ignorance, but is living in, in a clear conscience. So they're wrong about what they think is right. But within the, the area of authenticity, they are living out with authenticity the thing they really believe is right. There is within them, even in the, the state of, of, of not being belonging to Jesus, in the, even in the state of depravity, what we'd say, without the Holy Spirit necessarily enlightening them, there is some capacity in a human being that what they believe is reality and living it out authentically can be there. And when that exists, God seems to, to treat people so his wrath isn't as intense, and he often works to try to do something. Now, think about this. In Genesis 20, there's a story about a guy named Abimelech. Now, Abimelech meets Abraham and Sarah, the first patriarch starters of everything we know about the people of God, right? And Abraham's wife, Sarah, is pretty hot, apparently, and Abraham's afraid the Abimelech and people are just going to kill him and take her. So he says that she's his sister, and she says that he's— her brother. And so Abimelech goes, well, that's great because, dude, we can be friends and I can marry your sister and this is all going to work, right? And so Abimelech takes Sarah to be his wife. And so, and Abimelech has this dream in which God shows up and he says, listen, Sarah is Abraham's wife and I'm going to kill you. And, Abimelech, and this is Abimelech's conversation with God in his dream, right? He says, he, that's, Abra that's Abraham, did he not say to me, she's my sister? And didn't she, Sarah, say to me, he is my brother? I have done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. You see what he's saying? Now, does he have clean hands? No, he's taken another man's wife. But did he do—I mean, did he do it internally thinking he was doing something that was okay? Yes, he did. He didn't know he was doing something wrong. He said, didn't I do this with a clear— so, And so, then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience. And so, I have kept you from sinning against me. And then he says what? That is why. Do you see that's causal? And so, meaning because you did it with a clear conscience. And so, I intervened so that you didn't consummate the marriage. And that is why I didn't let you touch her. And then he says, now return his wife or I'll kill you. 
Do you see how God reacted to him differently? And when he said, I acted with a clear conscience, he didn't say, okay, the sin doesn't matter. He doesn't say that, does he? But God responds to the human person differently when they're, because, here's why. Because if somebody is living with an authenticity between what they think is true and how they live and act and what they believe, what does that mean the step of salvation has to be? They just need the truth. They have the truth, they'll do it. Um, think of another example. There's a point in 1 Timothy, we love to quote from this passage, where Paul says that he's the greatest of all sinners. And he was the greatest of all sinners. The, the wrath that God could have kindled against him could be fabulous. But instead, God saves him, and he puts him in charge of reaching a couple of continents for Jesus. Now, why didn't God kill him? And he says in this passage, he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength and he's considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Now, why did that happen? He says, even though there was a lot against me, right? I was a blasphemer, I was a persecutor, and I was a violent man. And he says, I was shown mercy. Why mercy? Why not grace? Because grace is when God looks at our moral state and does something about it. Mercy is when God looks at our miserable state and does something about it. The problem with Paul was he was in the miserable state of ignorance. It was, the issue wasn't fundamentally moral, even though he was committing enormously immoral acts. But the reason he was committing immoral acts, not was that he was running away from the truth and he was inauthentic in his being and destroying his own conscience, was because he was fundamentally ignorant, but he was living out his ignorance as authentically as he knew how to do. So therefore, when God spoke to him and gave him the truth, his life totally changed. I mean, what explains Paul's change? Because of who he was, he was a man of conscience. The minute you switch out the truths, they change just like that. Why do some people, when they believe in Jesus, they no kidding change just like that, and other people just languish and languish and languish and languish and just to keep doing whatever they want? Why is that? See, I think it has a lot to do with whether or not before they were a believer and after they become a believer, what they had done to their conscience and whether or not they're fundamentally working to rehabilitate it, recognizing how critical it is, how it is the seat of how we become saved, how the Holy Spirit works in us, and how we come along in Jesus. The conscience cannot be violated. Um, think about this. The—, the Authenticity of conscience is one of the ways the Bible argues that you will have the strength to deal with people attacking you and slandering you and disapproving of you, right? In this passage, he says, listen, um, you, you need to not— if somebody says, look, that's been sacrificed to an idol and you're at their house to eat, don't eat it. But he says, you don't do it for your own conscience, right? Because you know the earth is the Lord's and everything is in it. You could eat it. It's not going to do anything to you. But that guy thinks it's wrong, so out of love for him, you should need it. And then he says, why should my freedom be judged by another man's conscience? Now, commentators have a huge struggle with that phrase. Why did he throw that in there? He's just trying to justify himself. No, he's trying to teach them about the nature of a conscience. If your conscience is settled, if it is working, if you know who you are in God, and it's clear what you know is right, what you know is wrong, when other people judge you, it does nothing to you. It is nothing to you. If you want to be less manipulatable, 
The best way to do that is to have a clear conscience. To know what you believe is right, true, beautiful, honorable, and noble in Christ as defined by God, and to live according to that and never violating it. That is who you are. And then when somebody comes and pressures you, it disapproves of you, and says blah, 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 it doesn't, it doesn't have its—because you know you'd never consider listening to that. Especially when it's pressure and not persuasion. When people try to manipulate you, you just kind of go, well— why should your conscience judge my conscience? Right? It's also obvious in this passage, in, in 1 Peter 3, 15 and 17, that, that Baal was referring to about apologetics. Peter's talking to people who are, who are being persecuted, and it's very difficult for them to believe and to live out the gospel faithfully where they are. And so he says, listen, here's what you need to do. He says, in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord, and always be prepared to give it an answer to anyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. So, what is he saying about the, the, the accuser's conscience, right? Somebody slanders you, how do you respond? Do you slander them back? Do you pressure them? Do you use rhetorical devices to assassinate their character? No, why? Because if you try to persuade another person to agree with you through those means, what are you doing? You're trying to lead them down the path of damnation because what you're encouraging them to do is to make a decision based on pressure, which therefore is not according to conscience and leads them towards damnation, even if what you're telling them is right. And so Christians can never engage in that. That's why Christians make bad pundits, and it's very hard for them to be successful politically because they have to give the long argument for everything because they're not allowed to coerce people. Because we believe it's to, it's to be Satan's buddy to do that. You can't do it. You have to simply give a reason. You can't pressure. You can only persuade. And you see, once you realize that you are not permitted to do anything but give an answer with gentleness and respect based on the reason for the hope that you have, what are you trying to do? You're trying to persuade somebody of a different truth to clean this up so that if they're living in authenticity of conscience, the minute they know that truth, they will live it out because you're, you're, you're respecting the integrity of the conscience. Does that make sense? And so then he says, keeping a clear conscience. Why? So that those who speak maliciously against you, your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Do you see what he's saying? Is he saying, listen, they're going to attack you. They're going to slander you. They're going to say all kinds of things about you. But listen, if you have a good conscience, you're going to be able to stand up. You're going to be able to stand up. You're not going to get crushed by it. But if you are not living according to conscience, you're not a truth-based person. You're not a beauty—you're you're not responding to what's true in the world about what's good and beautiful and just and right. If, if, if you're concerned about other things, will other people's pragmatic concerns affect you and pull you all over the place? Of course they will. That's why it's so important to teach our children, you don't follow Jesus because Jesus is nice and he's your special friend. You follow Jesus because it is true that he is king. Why? Because if Jesus is their special friend or your special friend, what happens when somebody else is trying to be your special friend and coercing you to buy into them being your special friend as the idol for your life and the thing that's going to provide for you rather than Jesus who hasn't done much for you lately? It's very unstable, you see? If you have a good conscience, if you recognize you cannot violate the conscience and you, it is inviolable, then you will be much stronger in your thinking in your feeling, and in your acting. 
than you could ever be if there is a fundamental violation and break in the, in the structure and nature and the woven togetherness of your conscience. Does that make sense? And thank you. And then, <laughs> and so for example, in 2 Corinthians, we're talking about trying to, to, to lead people to Jesus. What does he say? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Okay, so, so Paul believes that one day we're all going to stand in front of Jesus' judgment seat. That is very significant, right? And then, what, but what do he say? So therefore, do anything you can to get people to believe in Jesus. Is that what he says? Look, people could go to hell. You do anything you can, whatever it takes, by any means necessary, you get them into the kingdom, right? Is that what he says? No, because you can't, right? He says, each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad, right? There's going to be a judgment. Then verse 11, since then, right, because you believe, there will be an ultimate judgment that includes heaven and hell, and it has enormous eternal consequences. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. What do we do? We—the only thing we can do, we try to persuade people. Why? Because we can't take—we can't try to take someone anywhere their conscience won't go, because we can't violate a conscience, even to save them from hell. Why? Because if you violate somebody's conscience to believe in Jesus, you haven't saved them from hell, because their conscience didn't go along with it. If their conscience doesn't go along with believing Jesus, they're not saved, because they didn't get converted. What does conversion mean? It means to be, to be persuaded in conscience to switch from believing in this to this and then acting according to it. If you don't bring about somebody's conscience through persuasion, they can't be saved. Which is why when the Holy Spirit does the important work uh, on that persuasion that we try to do so somebody can come to Jesus, what does he do? He enters directly into their conscience and he does the work of conviction so that they are conscience-stricken about what is righteousness and what isn't righteousness, what is true and what isn't true, what is noble and what is ignoble, and who Jesus really is, so that their conscience is stricken and though they, so they can be persuaded and believe. And when they believe and their conscience isn't broken, they will act. And we won't have to beat our heads and beat our heads to try to get people to act like Christians. When people have a good conscience— and they believe in Jesus, it will be much easier for them to act like it. But we live in a—and that's why it is so significant that we live in a culture that encourages people not to live according to conscience, to not act on the basis of truth, but to act on the basis of pragmatism, what you want and how you feel and what you want to do that moment, and whatever's easier, and I can't, I can't afford to do the right thing, so I'm going to do what I want, I'm going to do what is expedient. That's why that is so deadly. That is why that is, that is a hundred times worse than almost anything else that could happen in the culture, because it— it creates damnation. It creates a heart that doesn't have the ability anymore to see the unity between what is true and how we must live. That is why the conscience is the most sacred part of you. Second thing is, how far, we got about four minutes for this, okay. So I'm just kidding. So the second is, you, therefore, you must protect your conscience. You have to live according to conscience. You must protect your conscience. There's two ways in which you must protect your conscience. The first is you need to obey your conscience. You need to obey your conscience. You can reason with your conscience and see if you should be persuaded of another thing, but you cannot disobey your conscience. So, for example, in, um, in 1 Timothy 1.5, 
Paul is writing this pastor who's under a lot of stress and will ultimately be killed doing his job. He says the goal, okay, and he says, listen, don't get involved in wives' tales and myths and all kind of speculative preaching, but listen, you preach the gospel. You preach about Jesus and about what happens when we come to Jesus. He says, now he says, and why does he say that? He says, the goal of me telling you to do this, he says, the goal of the command is love. Okay, so here's the question, Christians. What produces love? What produces love? What really produces love, right? Which comes from, is produced by a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith, which is essentially three ways of saying the same thing, right? That's parallelism. He's just trying to fill out the idea. A pure heart, what's a pure heart? It's a heart that is, has integrity. It's unified, there aren't problems in splitting it up into 50 different things. It's not a multiple-eyed or multiple-perspective heart. It's a heart that knows who it is, knows what it wants, knows why it was created, knows who God is. And therefore, it's pure, right? Same thing as a good conscience. The conscience isn't defiled. You, you know what you're called to be, and you are that thing. You don't violate your conscience. You protect your conscience. And a sincere faith. You know who Jesus is. You believe that he's King and Lord, and you obey him. It's three different kinds of metaphors for the exact same thing. And what does that produce? Love. That's what what produces love. That produces love. Just a few verses later, he says this, Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction. In keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them, you may fight the good fight. Okay, so if you don't know this— The idea of being a spiritual Christian is in many cases in the Bible referred to as a fight. And if you don't experience a fight for your life, I don't know if you're in the game. It is, it is hard. It's tough. And if, and if you want to, if you want to win the fight, if you want to fight the good fight, how do you do it? Well, it's right here. If you want to fight the good fight, comma, verse 19. This is how you do it. You hold on to the faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these, plural. Think about that. Why not just say, hold on to the faith? Why not just say, hold on to the faith? Why say, hold on to the faith and a good conscience? Because the faith is the truth content. When he says the faith, not faith, he says the faith, that is the truth content of Christian belief. Hold on to that, but you also have have to have the internal personal integrity of that being held with a good conscience. Right? Now, so that is different. Listen, that holding on to a good conscience is different than being true to myself. Those are not the same thing. In our culture, one of the reasons, ways our culture sells destroy your conscience and do whatever you want is by saying that's being true to myself. Right? Now, just take the old picture of the devil on one shoulder and the angel on another. That's your conscience. But that's not what your conscience is. That's yourself. And if you're true to yourself, that means you're being as true to the devil that's on this shoulder as the angel on this one. That is, in Christian terms, if you're being true to yourself, doing whatever bubbles up inside that you want to do, that is essentially saying, I have to be true to my sinful nature. I have to rebel against God as much as I want to. I have to just define myself by myself, pretend the universe doesn't exist and define me, or that there's a truth out there that I should conform myself to. Rather, I'm going to invent my own truth. I'm going to be my own God. I'm going to define myself from myself, and I have to be true to that. The 
That is very different than saying there is a truth, and if I'm going to be true to myself, that is, I'm going to have a true internal authenticity between what I know is right and how I live and act, that there's going to be unity in my mind, in my thinking, my emotions and how I'm feeling, in my will and how I'm acting, and how I use my physical body to live that out in the world. There has to be an authenticity that being, that's what being true to yourself means. You find out from God who and what you are, and you are true to that. Because you can't stop being a God-owned human being, and when you reject the truth and how we live, you, you aren't true to being a human, and that's what you are. The second thing that needs to be done in relationship to our conscience is you, we need to obey our conscience, but we also need to calibrate our conscience. That is, um, your conscience is not always calibrated properly, right? And so, because the truth isn't known right. You see what I'm saying? This truth, what we think we know, has to be perfected. That has to be growing. It's one of the reasons why we have adult Bible fellowships and small groups and we come to church and we have preaching for too long. And the reason for that is because we want to know. We want our conscience to be calibrated. It's, it's, it's the essence of who we are and how authentically human we can be. And so, um, this is a remote-controlled helicopter I bought for my son so I could play with it. And one of the things these have on them is a calibration knob because if you— Oh, hold on. I get some If you fly these guys like this, what happens— See how it's kind of spinning? So if you try to fly straight, it'll actually fly in a circle, right? Which is not what you're after. So if you want to get anywhere, you've got to actually calibrate the thing so that it stops spinning. And then you can fly wherever you want to go. Right? Okay, Nick, we're, we're, ha we're having a sermon right now. Okay, so— um, You see, the point is, it's one thing for it to be working, right? To have your conscience working. You've got to be faithful to the authenticity of your conscience. That what your conscience dictates, you obey. You can't violate that. But that doesn't mean what your conscience is dictating is actually the truth. And so, rather than saying, well, I'm going to violate this, you know, you've got to do what your conscience dictates, and then you have to get involved in the process of persuading yourself or being persuaded or getting in the game so that you can get calibrated. Because you're just going to fly around in moral circles and crash unless you can calibrate and fly in a direction you were made to fly. And so in order to protect your own conscience, you have to obey it, but you also have to be serious about the work of calibrating it. And one of the things that means is that as Christians, um, we have to engage in the discipline of inviting people to correct us and confront us when they use the manner of persuasion. That that, biblically speaking, that is what open-mindedness really means. Open-mindedness is not being a sucker for other people coercing you and intimidating you into believing what they think and that you're not open-minded enough unless you agree with them. That's not what open-mindedness is. 
Open-mindedness is recognizing that we're, our knowledge is limited, that we can be wrong, and inviting other people to persuade us by offering reasons and an answer for why they believe what they believe, and for us then to think about and think about and think about whether or not that's true, right, good, and beautiful. Whether that's what Jesus is like. And so therefore, if we really believe that we're sinful and we're desperately in need of our conscience to be recalibrated, if we know we want to believe the truth more perfectly and we can never obey our conscience, but we desperately want us to lead, lead us in the right direction, we should be people constantly looking around and inviting people to confront us and correct us if, if they come to us as persuaders rather than as pressurers. And so therefore, we have to build up the discipline as people to recognize the difference between when people are trying to persuade us and when people are pressuring us. And people who pressure us, they, you see, they don't understand the first concept of love. Do you see? Now, I don't have 25 minutes to work out how this works in parenting, where you have to use authority. Using authority as a parent and pressuring somebody isn't the same thing. But when somebody comes to us, let's talk about a relationship of equals and not an authority relationship. Somebody comes to us and seeks to, per, seeks to pressure us, and they, they, they cut us down. They make us feel like we're not smart if we don't agree with them. They, they you know, they say, well, the only reason you believe that because your mommy, whatever. They don't give reasons to try to persuade you, but you can tell they're put, you feel pressured. You'll feel pressured. And you begin to realize the difference between persuasion and pressure. When somebody pressures you, they go down in their, in their, in their trust value in your life. They should. They should descend in terms of how much you trust them. And when somebody comes to you and tries to persuade you of the truth, and you can tell they just want your good, they know that they're trying to persuade you in the area of conscience. And they know if you believe something's true, you'll act on it. I don't have to pressure you to act on it. But I, I believe this very deeply, and I want you to know it. That, per that person should go up. Now, think about how that works out in marriage. Is that the dynamic of your marriage? You disagree with your spouse about something? Do you fundamentally accept them and you try to persuade them to another way of thinking about it? Or do they only get your approval, however you show that, if they will buckle? Especially, now I'm talking about areas of practicality. I'm talking about areas moral that relate to truth and justice and God. Does that, does that make sense? So we, so what that means is we ought to be some of the most open-minded people in the world because of the humility that will come from knowing that we're sinners and that we are screwed up and we have so much to learn and that we desperately want to be well calibrated to protect our own conscience. Does that make sense? And it should also make us less glossy-eyed um, or starry-eyed when people try to pressure us. It'll, you see, it'll increase our immunity, like I said, under the first point. Now, if you realize this, then, then, if you're going to do what Paul says in verse 23 and 34, I think, are the two verses where he says, the way we ought to live is not for our own good, but for the good of others, right? That's what he says. Now, if you believe that, then how should you live? How do you love others, right? So it says in the first couple of verses here, everything is permissible. So like, I can do anything I want, right? That, that's, the reason it's in quotations is that's a Corinthian saying. They said that. They said, listen, Jesus is Lord. He's, he's freed us from the law. Everything in the earth belongs to God. We can do whatever we want. We're not under the— Mosaic law. So we're free. Anything is permissible. We're allowed to do anything. And Paul says, okay, okay. And he doesn't outright contradict that because he recognizes there's an enormous amount of freedom in the Christian life, right? He says, listen, you want to eat meat sold at the markets to offer to idols? Go ahead. You want to go to a non-Christian's house and, and eat food that they sacrifice to an idol as long as they don't make it an issue? Go ahead. It, it, 
It's fine. You're free to do that. So it's not like he doesn't believe in freedom, but here's what he says. He says, listen, you're thinking about it all wrong. Are you free to do anything? Yeah, and to a certain extent, you are, you're massively free. But is it beneficial? You see, how, what's, your, what's your logical principle? Is your logical principle your license, or is your logical principle the good? That is, is your logical principle love? And if it's love, you won't say, can I get away with it? You'll say, is it beneficial for me and for others? And he says, he says also, you say, you say everything's permissible, but not everything is constructive. That's a great word, isn't it? That's a great word. Christians, Christians for a long time, you, you've heard, you might hear Christians say, talk about edification. Have you ever heard that? Brother, we need to engage in some edification fellowship, right? That's, that's just this word. It's constructive. Does it build up? Does it construct? Does it make something a building? Does it make it stronger? Does it cut its foundation? Does it make it, does it build it on stone and make it so it can't fall down? Is it strong? Does it make it strong? Is, is what you're doing, what you want to do, is that license? Or does it make Christ in you or Christ in others, the, the building up of their conscience, well calibrated and well obeyed, does it make it strong? Does it build it, right? You see, that's the question. But you see, he, he doesn't even just leave that wide open because you could say paying somebody's light bill is constructive. I mean, there's tons of things that are constructive. So, the, so how do you narrow this down? How do you focus? And what principle do you build out of? What is the seed of the whole thing? What is the very bottom of the—what is the first command of love? And you see, the first command of love— he covers the sin, but it essentially gets back to this question of conscience, right? He gets to verse 31. He says, so whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God, right? That's, I mean, that's probably on a bunch of refrigerators, right? I mean, that, you can, you can, your whole life, you can live your whole life by that verse. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Now, what's the problem with that as your life verse, as people like to say? It's my life verse. Yeah, like golfers have just the six club as their, li as their life club, you know? It's kind of silly, but, but that does sum it all up, right? So, what, I mean, what, what does it mean? See, that's the problem. What does glory of God mean? Anything that glorifies God. Okay, well, how does God want you to glorify Him? Right? Is eating pizza, thankfully, the same as everything else? And you see, the thing is, He actually says. He actually says what that means. What does it mean to do everything for the glory of God? He says it, right? The inductive Bible study people are like, that's very good, manuscript study. That's right, read the verses around it. It's right there. Do not cause anyone to stumble. Now, you might be thinking, Nick, I've never been to any church where people routinely trip others. Well, you've never seen me in the children's wing. But th that's the point here is spiritually stumble. Now, what does that mean? You see, what he means by stumble is to cause somebody to stumble is to cause them to break conscience. That's what he means. To, for somebody to stumble is for them to walk away from the truth, for, for there to be a break in the inner authenticity of the connection between the truth of the gospel and how they live and how they respond. That is the faith connected with a good conscience from 1 Timothy, right? That's what's happening. That's what it means to cause somebody to stumble. It's to cause them to break faith and to have a break in their conscience. And what he's saying is to live for the glory of God is to do everything you can to make sure you do not cause that either intentionally or unintentionally. 
right? That's why he says, don't eat in a pagan temple because what are you telling everybody? Don't, if somebody, you go to somebody's house and they say, hey, this is sacrifice to a pagan idol. Don't eat it. Not because it's going to hurt you, but because that guy's going to think something false. That is, that you don't care about who you worship, which is, which will cause him to break conscience. You'll lead him down the path of damnation, even, even though you're doing something that's totally theologically valid. You're eating something God created for you to enjoy. And so what he's saying is don't cause people to break conscience, cause them to stumble either intentionally or even unintentionally. Why? For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many. Why? So that they may be saved. That is, the real truth coming into the real sea of their mind, emotions, and will in their conscience to be stricken of conscience, to believe in Jesus, and to be brought along in him with a good conscience in the Holy Spirit. That's his goal, his, his desire for everybody. So everything he does is designed to make sure that they would intentionally receive that and not unintentionally receive something else. And where did he get this? Where did Paul get this? Right? Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. You see, here's, here's one of the terrifying things about Christianity that you're going to have to face, that we face every day. Once you realize that what love looks like is to live for the good of the conscience of others, both directly and indirectly, and once you realize that the only way you can bring some, help the Holy Spirit bring somebody there or help bring somebody along is through persuasion and not through any kind of coercion, if you really think about that in terms of the human working together of how that happens, on whom does all of the inconvenience and suffering fall? Us. Right? Everything that has to be suffered for somebody to come to faith and to grow in faith, everything that needs to happen so that they may be saved, for what's really the good of others, whether it's somebody who hasn't been saved and we want to bring them to Jesus, to that unity of truth and conscience that's given by God through the Holy Spirit, or whether we want to, or whether we want to help somebody who's, who's come to faith go along in it without creating this break by, by inadvertently getting the wrong idea. All of that suffering, you see, falls on you and me. Right? You see, it's, that's one of the reasons why the elders, as we've talked about what should be the core values of High Point Church that we talk about all the time, one of them that's come up is not just service. Service is too weak a word, you see, in our culture. The word has to be sacrifice. It has to be. We have to fundamentally recognize that we suffer inconvenience and pain for others so that they may be saved, you see? And we should know that because we follow the suffering Savior. That shouldn't be foreign us. And, and, and unless you think something like, well, you know, but Jesus died for our suffering, didn't he? No, 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 no. Jesus died to save you from the suffering of your guilt under the wrath of God. He saved you from God's judgment. But he didn't save you from the necessary act of love, which he lived out in his suffering and which we live out with him. I and mean, what does Paul say in Philippians 3? Philippians 3, there's this whole section about how, how he wants to be found in Christ, united in Christ. So he starts out with justification. Jesus just saves me. And then I'm united with him in the Holy Spirit. And then what does he say? He's, what, what's this? His longing is not, and then I'll be resurrected from the dead and then I am going to be in great shape. That's not what he says. He says, he says, I want to I know Christ 
in the power of his resurrection, becoming like him in his death, and so experience the resurrection from the dead. Right? What does that mean? That means that no Christ is parallel to in his death. That is, one of the ways we actually know Christ is by not suffering and dying to save sinners legally in terms of their God's wrath against their sin, but to, but to have the exact same ministry of Jesus, what Christians for 2,000 years have called the way of the cross, that is suffering with and like Jesus in bringing people to God. Because if you don't coerce and you persuade, all the suffering falls on you. And here's, here's why that works. Because on the back end, Jesus knows the dirty little secret. On the back end, what Jesus knows is that if you embrace the fact that the life of love is one in which you live for what's beneficial and constructive for all you come in contact with, you do whatever you can so that they may be saved. The dirty little secret of that is that is the life of joy and hope. That's what he knows. And he leads with that a little bit. But you see, he doesn't want to coerce us through a persuasion that puts the wrong values forward. He wants us to do it for the right reasons because it's true. Somebody told me after the last service, he said, she said, she said well, a counselor in the church, she said, you know, there are, some pe- there are some scientists that just came recently out with a finding that when people psychologically break conscience, something happens with their brain that it starts to poke holes in their immune system. Right? Now that's interesting, but why does that have no place in this sermon? As persuasion. Because it's persuasion for totally the wrong reasons. Who cares if you get sick? in relationship to the truth, right? And so you see Jesus—that's the thing about Jesus. We live in a culture in which everybody sells all the best things up front. Oh, do this and you'll get all this. Jesus doesn't lead with that stuff. He doesn't—he holds it all in the back, and he he covers it up, and he doesn't—he intentionally hides it. Why? Not because he doesn't want to give it. It's not because he's not gracious or generous. He's way more generous than you and way more generous than anything we've ever received from anybody. Why does he do it? He does it for conscience sake. So that we would believe and follow for the right reasons. And then he just dumps it all on us. So that on the back end, almost unforeseen and almost unhoped for, as we become what we were always meant to be and we live out a life of joy and all of a sudden there is hope and there is joy and there is peace and there is self-control and there is loving relationships and there is that we thought we would never have. But we could have expected it if we would have just worked out up front that we were believing in a Savior who was self-sacrificing and good. Let's pray. Father, uh